All right, we're on. So we're sitting here today with um, Phil and Marsha Reed. Thank y'all for coming in to hang out. Um, a couple episodes ago, we had on John Sanders, and this. So John's a longtime friend of mine, and he married Kristen Reed. Uh, she came down here. What was that? Two thousand and four, maybe, uh, to do. I believe it was the Tampa Urban Project mm-hmm. that we all did yeah. together. Um, kind of a an experience living in the city and learning about God's heart for the poor. And then she stayed. Yep. And she met John, and they got yeah. married. And yeah. and so and so you're Kristen's parents. Yes. Right. And I, I guess my understanding is you have a similar story. You went somewhere when you that's were young right. and stayed put. You want to, uh, maybe we just start there. Well, that's just correct. Tell you us know, a little bit about that. Kristen followed in our footsteps. I came to Jackson, Mississippi in 1975, intending to stay for four months to do a ministry project. And 44 years later, I'm still in Jackson. I love still it. working with Voice of Calvary. So she really followed in uh, both our footsteps. Yeah. Actually, my wife came down to stay a summer in 1976 and she's still there as well so yeah that's that's our history now you came down from indiana mm-hmm. i came from indiana and you well i came from california that's where i heard about voice of calvary ministries but i was born and raised in minnesota okay so i had moved from one place to california and then heard about it came down for the summer now how old are, how old were you when you came 25 all right and you uh 26 now y'all didn't know each other. I was twenty. I was. I, I was twenty six. You were both twenty six, <laughs> and you didn't know each other at that no, point. No, we right. did not know each other beforehand. Now, maybe each of you in turn just tell me, like, what? How'd you end up coming there? Why? Um, what brought you there? How'd you find out about it? Well, I found out about it through the founder, John Perkins, who now is a household name in yeah. the Christian community. I mean, you know, he's just a world leader now in Christian community development. But back then. He was uh, not that well-known, but he came up to, I was going to Earlham School of Religion in Richmond, Indiana, Quaker School. Okay. And I was uh, involved in a boys club in inner city Indiana, uh, Richmond, Indiana. And on most days, I was the only white person in the place. It was all African-American. And really, I grew up in small town Indiana, divided by racially, and uh, the only african-americans i knew were on the wrestling team with me and didn't really have any relationships so here i am in richmond indiana and working in this boys club and just not really understand having any understanding of the african-american community the african-american experience and so john perkins came down did uh, a lunch uh, lecture over at earlham school of religion and he talked about the three r's of uh relocation redistribution and reconciliation which is racial reconciliation so it was that that really piqued my interest Mm because i really wanted to find out uh more about the black experience more about what these young men women were going through mostly men and so i came down he invited me down to do my ministry project which every student had to do at the beginning of the second year so i he invited me down i went down to do my ministry project and I met the Lord there in a personal way, even though I was at a school of religion, I wasn't, I hadn't made a personal profession, and I met the Lord down there, and just got involved in one thing after another, and I'm still there. Stay still, put. still love what I get to do. I, I don't know very many people have been working the same place for 44 years, and still look forward to getting up in the morning and doing, doing what they get to do every day. 
I love it. I love it. And I really want to dig into that because really a theme for this show is just work. And I want to talk a bit about why that work was meaningful to you and important, Mm -hmm. but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into that. Um, did you, so did you leave school? I did. I, uh, I was, uh, supposed to go back after that September to December, uh, four month period. And, and, uh, the, two things happened one is of course i again i gave my heart to the lord and and i was sharing with my personal advisor my uh, conversion experience and i really expected him to be uh, excited about it and and i guess i would say he more expressed concern uh, that i had uh, sort of bought into his fundamentalism uh, mm. he, he he didn't try to discourage me but he was concerned okay and so that was one thing i didn't feel like i wanted to go back to that environment where i didn't feel like my faith experience was going to be uh undergirded but but more importantly i'd started a youth group i started the voice of care had just moved to jackson uh from mendenhall mississippi where it all started and i got involved with the young people in the neighborhood and at the end of the my term when i was getting ready to come to the end of my turn i asked john perkins uh, dr perkins who was going to take over the youth program and one thing I learned about John Perkins over the years is he never allows your problem to become his problem. Okay. And so he said, I don't know who's going to take it over. That's, that's your problem to figure that out. <laughs> I like it. So uh, I really decided to come back for another year, Re- really more uh, for the young people, that we'd start a great youth program, and I just didn't want to see it go by the wayside. So I decided to come back for another year. And you still in relationship with some of that? first group of kids i am still in relationship with some of these young people who are now well into their 50s yeah Man. uh yeah we still have relationships with some of those very same young people i love it mm-hmm. now how did you hear about it and come down well my story is a little different from phil's um i was going to a church out there in california palo alto bible church okay and, um was learning a lot about my faith and how that was supposed to work out in my life on a daily basis and I was getting coming under conviction that I really wasn't letting Jesus be Lord of my life that I was living a life that I was making my own decisions and being um, pretty comfortable about that but I found myself being coming more uncomfortable Hmm. and more dissatisfied with that faith that there had to be more to my life than what I was experiencing as a single person. Having a lot of fun, enjoying the whole atmosphere of the Bay Area, but uh, a young man from Voice of Calvary came out to my church to raise his support. And for some reason, it was the Lord's leading, but I went up to talk to him afterwards. And so we begin kind of a correspondence, and he suggested that I come down as a summer intern that summer, uh, the next summer. And I was just like, there's just no way. You know, I've got a job, I've got an apartment, I've got a car. There's just no way I can drop all of that and go down to Mississippi, of all places. Sure. And uh, leave it and then do what? You know, but the conviction kept building and growing, and I became more and more unhappy with mm-hmm. my position, what I was doing, and dissatisfied. And I really knew very little about Voice of Calvary. I think what I was experiencing was just a understanding of what lordship is in a person's life that there's a point where you have to decide that you're willing to step out on faith to do something 
that you wouldn't normally do, but you're willing to take that risk. Mm -hmm. And at a point during those weeks and months, I came that to that point and said, okay, whatever, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it because it's better than this frustration and, and anxiety and whatever it was that I was going through at the time. So I made the arrangements. I really had no clue. I didn't know if I was going to be in the inner city, living in the inner city, living in a tent or in a house, or if I was going to be working in an office or with children. I had, I was clueless, which was really kind of strange for me. But I came down for the summer, and um, was really confronted with a lot of the truth of Scripture about justice, mm -hmm. about the poor, about the church's real call in the world and even though i was a christian and was growing in my faith it changed my perspective on life uh, and my life as a as a believer and i met phil that summer and we had a kind of an instant bond we were a little bit older than the college age kids that were there mm -hmm. and uh, had s sort of similar backgrounds in some ways and so we became friends but that was the extent of it as far as i was concerned and so I came for those seven or eight weeks and then left and traveled back to California. You did, okay. Yeah, I left and traveled back to California. But before I left, uh, Reverend Perkins asked if I could come back for a year, if I'd be willing to do that. And I just thought, no. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a lot to ask of anybody to do that kind of commitment. But everywhere I went, people said, it sounds like you need to go back. Hmm. So I went back to my family, my friends in, in Palo Alto and to that church and raised some support to come back. And during that, left in, in uh, December, came back to Jackson in January after Urbana. And uh, during that year, uh, Phil and I, as our relationship grew, we both felt a calling to be there in Jackson. And so uh, we got married and have stayed there ever since. Wow. What did you do that first summer? Uh, the first summer, I kind of worked with John Perkins and, and the young man that introduced me to the whole thing. To, they were working on a book uh, that summer, and so I was in the office some doing things that I was familiar with, uh, having been somewhat of a career person before and working in, in offices. So that was interesting and, and uh, challenging to do that but then they also sent me out to uh, a kids camp uh you know where you send children to camp for a week yep and here i am kind of pretty inexperienced with the african-american community and and they sent me out to a place called camp pioneer to be a camp counselor mm -hmm. for a week and after about three days i went to the head of the camp and i said i can't do this it's too much it's too hard i don't understand these kids they're they're so mean to each other they're awful they're mean to me I said I want to go home and he just looked at me and he smiled and he was just so nice about it but he said no you mm -hmm. gotta stay you know we need you and I f figured it out and, and stayed the rest of that week but it was a challenge mm -hmm. I was just uh, challenged by the complexity of race and of understanding people that were different from me and of understanding what that meant as a person as well as as a Christian. Yeah. And then uh, what my response needed to be in terms of the church 
you know, I grew up in a great Christian family, wonderful Christian church. I knew a lot about the Lord and about the Bible, and yet there were things that I had never been taught in the same way. And so it was a real turnaround, a real turning point for me in terms of how I looked at the world yeah. through the eyes of Scripture in a new way. So it it was challenging. It was it was definitely a it was a good summer, but it was a very challenging in some ways very difficult summer. So y'all didn't move to Mississippi to be with each other. Mm-mm. No, we didn't. But no. it didn't hurt. <laughs> no, well, in fact, that's where we. Of course, that's where we met. And yeah, uh, uh, I, you know, uh, we joke halfway jokingly, but it's serious too that. I felt a uh, calling for us to be together long before my wife did. <laughs> and, uh, so I took it on as a, as a I was going to win her. Yeah, just being her, obedient to that calling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to put uh, in the it, work. It, it took her longer to come to that realization. And I sometimes say only halfway jokingly that uh, I think she finally agreed to marry me just so I'd quit asking. But uh, I didn't, uh, and I know that's not the truth, but that I, I, was, I was pretty certain early on that she was the one God had for me, but, uh, and, you know, God told her the same thing eventually, yeah. and here we are, and we, uh, I know I married, I tell everyone I married way out of my league, mm-hmm. over my head, and you probably did too, John. Uh, I mean, you Working will. on that. You're going to, you're going to, yeah. <laughs> and I know John Sanders did for sure. For sure. Uh, but, uh, but Kristen married well too, I'll say that, uh, you know, seriousness she married well with john he's a good dude we have to you know we have to come to that realization that we god gives us uh the person we need to be with that's better than we deserve really that's Hmm. what grace is all about you know i had some things i wanted to ask you there's like a million things in everything you've said already that i i want so i'm like my mind is i wants to run in a hundred ways but this point you're making about partnership I mean, maybe both of you can just speak to this, but like, talk to me about relational partnership mm-hmm. in in the in the context of shared work, shared mm-hmm. vision, and hmm. kind of aims. I, if I can, if I can mm-hmm. start with that one, uh, because I think the thing that I wanted as a adult woman, you know, I wasn't a starry eyed teenager. I, you know, I had been living on my own. I had been working. I felt pretty complete you know, and and confident of myself and being able to make my own way in the world. So I wasn't looking for love, you know, in all the wrong places, so to speak. But at the same time, what I knew I needed and what I wanted was someone that loved the Lord more than he loved me. And so that's one of the criteria that I was looking for and all the guys that I was seeing or dating or, or knew and and I knew when God showed me that Phil was that person, mm. you know, who would love me because he loved the Lord. And so I think in a relationship, we sometimes look for the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, we look for someone that's going to love us. We look for someone that's going to meet our needs. We look for someone that can provide for us and and help us be that complete person that we need to be. Whereas what we really need is someone who is going to be committed to the God of the universe, to this Jesus Christ, and 
fulfill that relationship and in doing so fulfill the relationship that you need to have with them Mm -hmm. and so when I realized that Phil was that person for me it was like oh okay the light came on you know uh, he he was a man that was going to love me but he was going to love Jesus more Mm. and so it was all of a sudden a no-brainer this was the guy that I was meant to spend the rest of my life with Oh, you can say I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and I I agree with all that, and and also related to what the purpose of this podcast you're doing, and the call particularly we have in working and living in the inner city. It's it's something that we had to be called to together, Mm -hmm. and it's one of those issues that I think that really is plaguing the the church today. There's there's things in Scripture that I don't think we get quite right. I think I think we get it uh, almost right, and or it even works in a worst case scenario. But it's not the it's not God's ideal. So specifically, what I'm talking about is I I, I went to a seminary in, where I graduated from at Reformed Seminary in Jackson, and we talk and I took family development training classes and okay. talk about family and and we drew this cons- we drew these concentric circles. So mm-hmm. My rela- so my most important relationship was with God, and then it's with my wife, and then my children, and my church, and my community. And there's truth to that, but I think that's a worst-case scenario. It's, it's like if something gets out of whack, then I can go back to that model. But I think a better model is where those circles, I have my relationship with God, I have my relationship with my family, and relationship with my church and my community, and I'm supposed to live where all those circles intersect. Yeah, there's an integration. Yeah, so right. so Marsha and I, before we were married, even we we felt called to be at Voice of Calvary together. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we have people come down and ask us, even as late as recently as a couple of weeks ago, about, well, uh, what is it? How do you make a commitment like this uh, to an inner city like West Jackson and? One of the things we say is you have to be called, if you're already married, you have to be called to it together. Mm-hmm. And we, we say to, a hu- sometimes it's a husband saying, you know, I really, call, I really feel called to move here and be part of Voice of Calvary or move into the inner city, but my wife's not called to it. And we say, well, then you're not called. Yeah. You got to be called to it together. And so for us, it was that calling together that, uh, of course, if my wife ever got to the point where, or me, where we didn't feel we wanted to be there any longer, then we'd have to make a change. But for now, we're we're called there together. Yeah, and that's that's what that's where we're supposed to be living. It's where all those circles interact. Yeah, I like that. You know, one of the things that I think comes up a little bit in these conversations around work, in particular, is you know, kind of the the idea of well, people talk a lot about work life balance. This is what you made me think of. Not, but in a, in many more ways in relationship, but the the idea that there's something to be held in balance that you're going to go to work and then you're going to go live your life, which, you know, is something that I'm really trying to unpack and think, you know, I Mm -hmm. I think work is something we're created to do, to produce, to build. And, and, you know, there is a way in which those things can be integrated rather than that they live kind of, there is a way in which like you're saying that, you know, he would, that he would love God primarily and and love me or then love me you know there's a way that i think it was um what's that 
C.S. Lewis, there's a book on relationships. I think it's called Four Loves. Oh, it's on love. It's types of love. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he, he talks about there that's just resonated with me forever, and maybe I hear in your story a little bit, is he talks about like there's a kind of love that looks into each other's eyes and thinks that we're going to have a relationship because we stare at one another. He's like, but there's a higher love, and it's one that is we stand shoulder to shoulder because we're going the same direction. We're called to the same mm-hmm. people or place. And I don't know, there's something in what you're saying. It's like someone's called to what they want to do, but then also like there's a there's a necessity to identify who maybe you're doing that with. And maybe that's one another primarily. And then with your children as an extension of that, but then also the rest of your community. And I, I want to ask you about the, some earliest memories, but I think before we go to that, you're both. So you said you still work with voice of Calvary, but you are retired. Yeah. Is that right. Well, I, I tell, I don't think the whole concept of retirement is biblical. So the, that's, you amen, don't quit working. Amen. So I, I, the way I say it is I've reprioritized. So, yeah. So I'm still doing some of the same thing. Yep. I just not, I don't have the bottom line responsibility anymore. So I'm not the president. And, uh, and I'm not getting paid yet for it, so I'm, I'm basically, <laughs> I'm basically uh, right now I'm just volunteering. But I'm doing it, I'm doing it because I've called to do it. Yep. So, so I'm still, I'm still involved more in the the uh, uh, affordable housing piece as well as uh, doing some workforce development stuff. So, uh, so, so y- yeah. So I'm not retired in the sense that I'm going to go home and watch TV or go. F- I don't hunt and fish and. And I sure don't want to sit around watching TV all day, so I'm going to still do the same things. Yeah, I love that. I agree. You know, there's nothing, like you said, biblical about retirement. I mean, retirement in the sense that you're going to stop doing meaningful work sounds like a kind of hell to me or early death, you know. And and so I, I hear that in what you're saying. But And you, um, Marsha, you recently retired like a week ago. Uh, at the end of June. End of June, a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. So yeah. tell me about that. Like, what's that's exciting, huh? Well, it is exciting. <laughs> you know, it's nice to not have to get up every morning and know that I've got to report to work. Yep. You know, that I've got, I can make my own schedule. I don't have to worry about time frames or um, finding people to do things and managing this program. It was a great job and I loved it and it was my calling to do it. Uh, I'm glad to not be in the structure yeah. of that anymore. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward to finding what that's going to lead to. Because I believe that every step of your life prepares you for the next step. Yep. And so what I learned to do in one of my first jobs working at a small airport in Anoka, Minnesota, uh, using um, a calculator and figuring out how to balance checkbooks has helped me every step of the way that I've gone Yep. from then and so now i'm you know ready to see what all of this first time homebuyer training and seminar financial literacy training that i've done and all of those things that i've worked on for the last 45 50 years is going to bear fruit in the next 10 to 20 years yeah i don't know what that is yet but i know it's going to be there now it's briefly tell me what was the so you you're referencing a little bit but Tell us about the, what is it that you retired from? Well, I worked at a a bank, a Mississippi bank called Mm -hmm. Bank Plus. Okay. They started a program 
that is very unique for a bank. It's an outreach program to the people who have had credit problems in the past. Okay. You know, or have had no credit at all. Yep. And so they're giving people an opportunity to come to a three-hour uh, seminar to learn about the basics of financial accountability. Okay. How to look at money, uh, credit, how to be credit worthy, how to uh, set up checking accounts and balance a checkbook, how to set up a budget and follow it, yep. you know, realistically, and then looking at your credit report and determining what needs to be fixed or how to get it started the right way. And then along with that, they offer a small loan of 500 or $1,000 at 5% interest that people can take out to help build credit. So it's then hmm. repaying that loan that's affordable over 12 months or 24 months to build that credit history that yep. helps change that credit score from the 500 range to the 600 range or up into the 700. So we've given them a basic understanding. So my job was to manage that. Okay. I was I was the person who made sure that all of the different areas where Bank Plus was located did those seminars and then um, tracked all of the checking and savings accounts and loans that we did. And uh, we started out in 2008, and they hired me in November of 2008 to manage the program because it just grew so fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and with those loans that we did and the seminars that we did, we averaged over the years about 90 seminars a year in oh, different wow. locations and we were doing hundreds and thousands of loans a year so that when i left we had over 30,000 people that had attended a seminar and wow. we had um, loaned over 22 million dollars in loans 500 and thousand dollar loans wow so my job was so much fun because i was able to help people do what they wanted to do Right, and it really was restored. Like you're starting with something kind of broken or something mm -hmm. that's maybe not quite as it should be and walking yeah. with people through kind of the hard work of putting it back together. And yeah. And it, but it's a very unique thing for a bank to do that. You know, a small yeah. loan at 5% interest. I mean, we got a lot of inquiries from all across the country when they heard about it through different forums or conferences or whatnot. How did you decide to do this? You know, yeah. and, and, and to allow bank employees to do this after hours and pay them to do it really? or give them credit to do it um, was pretty amazing to find a, a, the leadership in a bank that was going to be behind it that yeah it's incredible to make that happen because uh, I'll say this too because Mississippi is one of only three states where we have these payday lenders you know you go yeah. in and you get a payday loan and and it ends up being, we're one of the three states where it's almost totally unregulated. So, and we're the poorest state in the union, or number two. Uh, and so people get caught up in these payday lenders, which I call li really legal loan sharking. Yeah. That's what it is. And so, although it's, they don't say that it's particularly targeted at that group, but that's one of the groups it serves is because one of the issues of why those uh places are are proliferating is because most banks won't make small dollar loans so right if you need a five hundred dollar loan where are you going to go mm -hmm. where are you going to go to a payday lender or rent to own or, or a pawn shop and pay heavily and for pay it heavily yeah. and and pay two three hundred percent interest over an annual um, basis and so i know the hope was that that 
and we don't I don't think they know how many people actually used it for this purpose but the hope was they'd take that $500 so and pay off this payday lender and get out from under that kind of slavery yep and then rebuild their credit and so it really it really is a a very unique program and and it it just fit in with our passion to uh, help the poor because our goal really is what you're trying to do as well is really help people not stay poor not stay in this poverty you know break that cycle of poverty not and that's not to stigmatize yeah poor people but it's to say uh, we believe we believe the good news to the poor that Jesus said he came to proclaim in Luke 4 yep besides the relationship with him is that you shouldn't have to continue to live this way you can get out of it what is poverty? Well, to me, it's uh, it's it's it can be. You, there's we always say there's a difference between being broke and being poor. Yeah, uh, you know, I I my, my wife and I in our marriage, there's times we didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, I was working for a nonprofit, and we didn't make much money, and Marcia was at home with our children, our children. So there were times we couldn't, we couldn't. Uh, we didn't have money. Yeah. But so we were broke. Uh, but we always had the resources to be able to uh, earn income. Mm-hmm. Now, being poor is is a person that doesn't have any options. They're they for whatever reason they they don't have access to the um, generating income to yeah. generating their 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 uh, prosperity uh there's a verse in proverbs that says a poor man's field produces abundant food but injustice sweeps it away Hmm. and so in the whole issue of injustice is that there can be a system set up so that certain folks can't get ahead yeah and so there's there's that issue but then there's there's the bigger issue i think is people just don't know individually how you get out of poverty you know, we, we had people in our circle of, of uh, contacts that nobody in the whole household works, has worked, uh, wants to work or knows how to work. And I think those two often go together. It's not just that people, I mean, you know, uh, there's a certain political viewpoint that can look around uh, at seeing all these guys sitting around doing nothing that I heard on your, ra- on your podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, and we can look at that and say these folks are just just lazy. Mm-hmm. And there may be some that are lazy. I'm sure there are. But the question is, why are they? Why do they not want to work? Even if they don't want to work, why? They weren't born that way. Right. Something beat that out of them. Something took that away from them. And so, poverty, being poor, means you don't have access to the resource to get out of poverty, and or you don't know how to you don't know how to use it to break that cycle. So. To me, that's that's what poverty is. Is uh, you don't think it can get any better. It's not going to get any better than this. this you know, there's a lot in there, and I've always thought about, you know, like you said, a lack of options and access. And I I, I often think of poverty as not having choice or mm-hmm. options. Right? There's no other way for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times we, you know, like. I guess an example, if I have to choose between taking care of my kid or getting prenatal care for the kid that I'm pregnant with, that's not a, it's not an act. That's not actually a choice, right? It's not a type of freedom. It's a type of captivity or something like that. And so 
there seems to be something in there about freedom. And, and then as you're sharing that, you're saying there's a desire to work or not, or maybe a lack of desire or something has been lost that you weren't created that way, but a loss of that desire or that thing that you were created to do. And in, in our society, we couple together work and income. So even as you're talking about poverty as a material lack, like I lack funds, but then I also somehow lack initiative or like something else. And I, I guess part of something I've always seen is like, pop, I don't know. I think I got this from, there's a, there's a writer. I don't know if you guys know Malachi Martin. He was a Catholic writer that wrote, anyway, there's a book called Hostage of the Devil. Don't read it. It's the most horrifying book I've ever read. Um, it's like five tales of these exorcisms from this Catholic priest that wrote them. Anyway, it's a horrifying, it's the most profane Christian book I've ever read. But he talks about perfect possession. This is concept, but like basically possess like, so this demonic possession that becomes unnoticeable. So he's like, once it's made perfect, it's totally incorporated. And it's not like there's another, there's a warring personality. It's like, no, it's made perfect. And I don't know why, but that always stuck with me. And what I, something I did with my own mind was translated it to poverty made perfect. Like this idea that poverty can move into your heart and mind and soul, that it isn't something economic, that it becomes something like destiny or something that strangles that very thing inside of you, right? That I no longer have what, and it's functionally depression, right? Like depression will take someone out similarly. It'll kill and erode the will. And anyway, I, I man, that's a, I couldn't help but ask that because this is apart from, let's say work is something I obsess around the concept and want to really chew on, but then Mm -hmm. it's not unrelated to this question of poverty. And I think it's a hard question to wrestle with an answer, but it, but our definition, um, really influences how we interact with those that we perceive to be poor. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add something to that definition? Well, I I was just thinking about that term generational poverty. Okay. Yeah. Where if you come from a a family that has been poor, has had lack their whole life and have, and see no one who's been able to rise up out of that or away from that, and that's all you know, then that's all you expect of yourself. Yeah. And so then that you become that repeating value of living that life of poverty that your parents lived or your grandmother lived or whoever because you, you don't see that there's any way to escape it. And so one of the things that we would want to do is be able to show people that there is another thing that they can do. There's something else that can some steps that they can take little steps to start with but to move them out of that realm of thinking there's there's nothing else for me yeah and I think that is some depression in there you know uh some sense of of loss of of not feeling the value yeah or the worth that I have to give excuse me to anyone one of the things that has always been fascinating to me, though, is to hear the stories of some families where there are uh, children, a family, same parents, same children, you know, same environment. They were all raised together, but one or two or three seem to be able to escape that. Hmm. Seem to be able to say, "Hey, I, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to finish high school. I'm yep. going to go to college. I'm going to do better than that." 
and they become professionals. They rise out of that sense of this is all that there is and all that I can do. But then they have siblings, the same gene pool, yep. that aren't able to grab a hold of that and do that same thing. What do you make of that? I think it's just horrible. <laughs> it's sad. It's just so sad because there are so many possibilities and yet there's this mindset somehow that some people are able to grasp yes I can do this and other people aren't and I'm not the psychologist to be able to define that but for some reason that hope that is instilled in some people's hearts and it you know doesn't necessarily have to be Jesus at that point sure you know it, it can that can be where that person is going to but it doesn't necessarily have to be that right away. They don't get it. And that's a sad thing. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think you're right. I There is something like mindset at the heart of that. But I'm curious, like, as you've walked with people, you've seen mm-hmm. people overcome obstacles. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they, they start with something small, get a little yeah. victory, mm-hmm. realize I can accomplish a goal, mm-hmm. set out another goal. Mm-hmm. And then people that don't, or maybe you're overcome by despair or lack that vision or hope or whatever that thing is like, is there, and maybe no need to be a psychologist, although that probably would be helpful. Right. Cause there, it does seem like there might be something temperamentally mm-hmm. going on, but in either of you can kind of speak to that, but this is something really interesting to me because I wonder is, is it something that you go, okay, the same gene pool, the same environment, like you've taken out so many of these it's something to puzzle over. What, yeah. what is it? Mm-hmm. You know, is it, yeah. Do you have any, any observations or thoughts or is that something you might learn to instill in young people, right? That, that you can teach it yeah. or is it that they were born with it or that they have this temperamental makeup that gives you something like grit or resilience? Well, I have this, uh, philosophy i call it the theory of change and it, it it's kind of based on the 12 steps because i i have a substance abuse background myself but but i'm convinced people will change if there's if there's four things in place uh number one is they have to become dissatisfied with where they're at yeah so as long as i'm satisfied i'm not gonna change that's what aa you know until you come to step one that you realize your life is out of control mm-hmm. and you're powerless over your addiction you're not gonna change so you have to realize you uh, you don't like where you're at. But then number two, and I think this is a lot of what we're struggling with today, even in this country, you have to see a relationship between uh, my actions and where I'm at. So I could be unhappy with where I'm at, but as long as I'm not taking any responsibility, I'm blaming somebody It's all else. y'all's fault. I'm not going to change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to change. And so I have to I have to believe that there's a relationship between my actions and where I'm at. And that doesn't excuse injustice, doesn't excuse racism. Uh, yeah, we live in an in- unjust, racist society. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to have to deal with it. That's who. That's, that's the cards you've been dealt. So you got to, what personal responsibility can you take? Yep. Then third, you have to believe you can change. And I think that's maybe the difference between that person and the family, that, that, that uh, one who changes and one who doesn't, for whatever reason, something Something catches that spark that believes I can change. And, and Because I can think my life is terrible and I can even say it's my fault. 
But if I don't believe I can do any different, I'm not going to change either. And then the fourth thing, and I think what you're really trying to do and with well-built bikes and what we're, we've strived to do and have had some success is you got to give people a way to get started. And yeah. that, that alludes back, goes back to what you said earlier is that where you've experienced some success or seen some things work is you show, you help people make a little change and, and they see it. Wow, I can do this. Then they, then they take a bigger step. But, and I think that's where the hope of what, again, you're trying to do with this podcast, well-built bikes and what you're doing is you're giving people a way to begin to, to maybe get the first victory they've ever had in their life. Yeah. We did a work, we did a, a workforce development steam project science technology engineering arts and math in jackson last year and we at, it was uh working with robotics and and at the end of the period at the end of the the event we had we had a, 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 a sumo wrestling thing between a fifth grade girl and a fifth grade boy they'd made these little robots and programmed them <laughs> and, and then they, they did a little sumo called a sumo wrestling match and and uh, the next morning uh, we got a email from a, a woman who's a teacher and she said that five that fifth grade boy you had uh in your program last night i need to tell you about him she said i was his teacher two years ago hmm. and she said he was one of the most angry bitter young men you'd ever want to meet until he discovered he could do pr computer programming and more than that he discovered he could do it better than anybody in the class hmm. and she said it seemed like almost overnight all that anger went away, and I'm sure he still struggled with it, so she was probably using a little hyperbole, but the point is that he discovered something he could do, maybe for the first time in his life. He discovered, I can do this. This is what I was created to do. And so here he is. He won a, he won a school-wide contest on robotics, and, and it, it just took away all that anger. And... and I think we're going to see more of that. I know. I believe you're going to see more. You're going to this this bike thing you're doing is going to is going to strike a nerve with with certain people, and maybe for the first time, they're going to see they can do something creative. Yeah. And it's going to be life changing. And we've seen that. We've been privileged to see that happen. Uh, because it gets back to something you said. I listened to your podcast and. You said most of what I was going to say from a theological point of view, but... You could say it again. Well, in Genesis <laughs> 1 and 2, yeah. I always tell people, work was part of paradise. Yeah. Work was part of creation. Adam and Eve were assigned to garden, and it was part of heaven, of paradise. And mm -hmm. I fully believe we're going to work in heaven. I think uh, I think heaven's going to be a restoration of life the way God created it to be in Genesis 1 and 2. So I fully expect to work in heaven. I have a buddy that... Um well, he's now a, a contractor, uh, like a general contractor. But at the time, I used to work with him. We were laying tile. And uh, I, it jokingly saying, like, I just need to get, like, if I could just get into heaven, whatever. He's like, that's cool. I'll be, I'll just be laying golden pavers. Yeah. But he, yeah. I don't know. That's some reason that, that anytime someone mentions working in heaven, I picture this dude laying, well, it's gonna laying be, tile. And <laughs> I, I imagine it's going to be like, you know, there's certain days in your life, I'm sure you've had, you went home and. You said, man, today was a really good day at oh, work. Yeah. Well, it's going to be like that every day in heaven, except it's going to be a hundred times better than that every day. So, But what is a consequence of the fall is toil. Yeah. Is where, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam got up the next morning after they'd eaten the forbidden fruit, and he went out in the garden, and he saw weeds. He said, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm injecting here. Sure. I think he went to Eve and said, what is that? And God said, that's a weed, man. Get used to it. Yeah. Because the consequence of the fall is, is work you don't want to do. It's, it's the alarm clock goes off 6 o'clock Monday morning. You're like, God, I got to go to work again. Yeah. That's the fall. That's the toil. But work is supposed to be, uh, it's part of creation. So we should, like me, I want everybody to, I want everybody after 44 years of working to be able to say what I could say. And that is, I always, there were tough times, of course, but I usually woke up early and to prepare for the work that I got to do that day. And I made a little money at it. I didn't get paid a lot, but I, I made my living at it. So I think what we're really supposed to do is find out, is help particularly young people, but of any age, what is it I really want to do? Yeah. Find their gift, their God-given gift, because we were all given at least one gift. And I think God intends us to make our living on that gift. Yeah. So we got to help. We got to help them find it. We got to help hone that gift. And then we got to help people find a way to make their living at that. And that's really what I'd like. That's really what my passion. Uh, And we've had some success at it. But uh, I, I think that this dichotomy between uh, my, uh, what I like to do and what I have to do to make a living so that I can afford to go do the thing that I want to do. Yeah. is a consequence of the fall. Yeah. And I think there's a better way. I'm not saying it's going to be easy because you know, if we, if we have bills, we got to pay those bills some way, but maybe we got to find a way to simplify our lifestyle or find a way to make better income doing what we'd love to do. Now you, 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 you told the story of this kid that started realizing, was it programming that he could do yeah. programming mm-hmm. and something kind of woke up in him. Yeah. And then you said, you know, I, there are days that I work and I'm fulfilled in that work and I come home and like, it was a good day. And of course I, I think, you know, I mentioned laying tile. I, I was a tile installer and that is one of the great examples to me of standing back and looking at your work and going, damn, I just did that. Yeah. And like, I'm happy about it, fulfilled by it, tired but like fulfilled and experience a kind of rest mm-hmm. that I can't get another way than having finished something. And, and there's something about, you know, we've talked about this before here, but, and I, and I think I want to talk to everybody about this, but there's a, there's a, uh, what we call a flow state that people get into. You guys, I'm sure are experienced, have experiences where you are doing something that's challenging that you love, that engages you fully and you lose track of time and you forget to call home and you don't, you know, you, time dilates and you lose track of what you're doing and you step back, you forgot to eat lunch. And, um, and, and as you reference, like, I think we're going to work in heaven. I, I don't know. There's something to me that I go, that's like a taste of that, right? Those moments where you're like, so in, it's this eternal now that you're working in. Can you maybe each share, um, an example of that or a thing that does, that is that for you? Go ahead. I've done a lot of talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know that I could come up with just one example, but I do know that, like I said earlier, I believe that everything that I had done helped prepare me for the work that I did at the bank that I was at. And so there were some years, uh, that we were just super busy you know we were just flooded with requests to do seminars and we were flooded with 
uh, people wanting to get into seminars, and we we had so but. much going on. But it wasn't it wasn't uh, over. It, it in fact felt overwhelming at times. But it was always, gosh, I'm glad I can do this. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad that I get the opportunity so that when I would load up my cart at the end of the day, knowing that I had four more hours of work to do that night, it was just like, hey, guys, we get to go do another seminar. Mm -hmm. You know, we get to talk to people about something that's going to possibly change their lives. And and so those times when you know you're being effective uh, Mm. and, and that you are making an impact that is tangible in someone's life are what helps keep you going and and there are some things some days where that doesn't happen yeah you know but then there's others where you just feel like uh that that this season is that season for me you know there's going to be a day or two that that aren't great but there's i know in the end that even with people that call and complain about the program that can't get in a seminar or they, you know, they're unhappy about the loan or something, you're still able to have an impact on that person's life and help turn that bad attitude around mm-hmm. to this is a possibility. This is a, this is a, a, a time where you have to make some choices about how you're going to respond to this program and let it work for you yeah. if you're willing to work it. And so we made demands on people. And I, th- I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we have to make some demands on people to help them uh, know that it's of value. Yep. That, that there's something they have to give of themselves in order to get something back. And, you know, one of the things that um, we did with the seminars is we had a very specific time that they started and then when they ended so we knew that if we were we were going to start a seminar at 5:30 and if you weren't there at 5:30 you didn't get in sure well you say sure but that's not the way people thought oh no i understand you know? <laughs> they thought well if i get there 5 minutes late or 10 minutes late that'll be okay well 20 minutes you know oh my car you know i had a little trouble they show up a half an hour late they can't get in well they get upset Oh, yeah. You know, and they get angry. But at the same time, we're telling them up front, you've got to be there on time. Yep. And so you get people to that mindset of saying, this is your responsibility. Yep. If you're not here, you can't participate and you'll have to wait till next month. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of set the tone, not only for the people that we were trying to get to the seminars to hear what we were saying but also for my fellow employees Mm. that this is important you know we're not just playing with these people it's important we're going to be there on time we're going to be set up and ready to go we're not going to be standing around joking with each other we're going to be serving these people that are coming in and we're going to get there early and we're going to have it ready to go and we're going to do it well we're going to do it to the best of our ability every time we do it no matter how often we do it and so we just set that standard and i think that helps people feel good about what they're doing yeah you know they're reaching something now as you're sharing i i hear so one of the things i heard you say was that you're you're motivated by knowing that there's impact so as you started speaking i heard meaning right there's meaning in this but then you started transitioning into there's impact, there's fruit, there's something comes of it. 
and of course, sometimes that's not the case, but sometimes it is whatever seasonally. Um, I personally have been super nervous about having any need or attachment to something like impact. Now, obviously we aim at that, right? But I've been really nervous personally about that because I know that a lot of times, especially in this kind of work, it's very hard to quantify or mm-hmm. point at or even mm-hmm. know that it is a possibility. That mm-hmm. despair uh, can often have a pretty loud voice that needs to be contended with, right? And I, and I typically lean on something like meaning or something like calling right there's you know that's the the great like mother Teresa. like i wasn't called to be successful i was called to be faithful right as a response to like mm-hmm. it's still calcutta what what's mm-hmm. the deal you've been here so long and yeah what i i i i just like to hear you maybe respond to me saying that a little bit because i i i hear you saying that and i'm mm-hmm. i'm partly jealous of it and partly nervous about it like mm-hmm. for myself maybe advise me in that but also just like what, how, how do you, how do you, how did you hold attention? Because for sure there were times and seasons mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. that was hard to point at. Yeah. And yet you yeah. still showed up and said, we're going to do a good job and I'm going to take four hours worth of work home. And yeah. I mean, in all that you're saying, you're saying I taught others about sacrifice and I sacrificed mm-hmm. and I want to like zero in on sacrifice. But before that say like, you know, sacrifice usually is towards some end. You are aiming at impact. You are aiming at something like fruit. But, but how did you, how did you deal with that? I, I think that, that's a good question. You're coming up with these really good questions. Um, Thank you. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think. Well, you have to be realistic. You're going to get disappointed. Yeah. You know, if you think you're going to go into any type of work and not face disappointment or failure, then you're fooling yourself you know so you've got to be able to understand from the beginning that things aren't always going to go well and you're not always going to be given the pat on the back and saying what a good person you are and what a great job you're doing yeah so you come back to what we were talking about i think at the very beginning what's the fundamental reason that you're doing this anyways yep you know why are you interested in helping people get a bike what difference? Why does that make a difference? Where does that desire to do that come from? And you have to go back to that checkpoint on a regular basis. Mm. Um, I think Phil and I have been able to help each other hmm. along the way with that at times when uh, he has come home and just said, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm tired. Um, uh, it's just not working. I'm disappointed. And then God would hmm. give me some listening ear or some word to say and and be able to encourage him. Uh, I know I came home from a job that I had one time, and I was so hurt and mad and and upset and angry. I was practically throwing things, and that's just really not me. <laughs> never, <laughs> so, right? Never. <laughs> never, you know. And. And it was just like, I just, I, I don't understand, you know, why is this happening? Yeah. And you've got to go back to, there. maybe there's not a good reason except for you to get back in touch with the humility of mm. working for Jesus mm-hmm. and not for yourself. Yeah. You know, the humility of working for God, whether you get the kudos and the um, 
positive feedback from your fellow coworkers or not. You know, so why are you working? And that's something that we have to get back in touch with. Yeah. So Phil was referencing Genesis and the stories there. And when you were sharing, you were, you were saying, look, this is valuable and you're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to be responsible or show up on time and implying sacrifice. Sacrifice is something that I think is a super fascinating concept, especially, you know, we have like Old Testament sacrifice, you know, burnt offerings and things like that. But we still use the word like you sacrifice to get through college, you sacrifice to learn that thing or get that job or accomplish that goal. Right. We, we know sacrifice and you're teaching sacrifice. Well, there's a story in Genesis of sacrifice and there's two brothers that make sacrifices and the reality of that story is so true. And I know for myself, many, cause we make sacrifices, but they don't always bear fruit, right? There's a, and I don't, I don't know if you guys have like maybe thoughts on that story as such, or, or even speaking to the, just the concept of sacrifice, but the idea of like doing something hard today for the sake of something tomorrow and knowing tomorrow's not promised that that thing is not possible. And I, and I, I don't know, there may be something in that, that, that there's some logic to that, that might actually, um, stand in contrast to what we were talking about earlier is like, some don't have that in them anymore. Something has died along the way. Um, I don't know if that, if that just spurs thoughts for either of you, it's just a, maybe just a point of reflection that I feel like is emerging in, in your own. Well, I think that, I assume you're talking about Cain and Abel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think that the issue with that story is that it, it says that, uh, it says Abel brought of the first fruits of the ground. So he bought, he brought his best mm -hmm. and first fruits. And Cain just brought something as an obligation. Uh, so Cain sort of gave what was left over or, what he felt like he could afford whereas mm -hmm. Abel brought his best his best his first fruit and that's why God honored his sacrifice and didn't honor Cain's and even at that because we serve a God of grace he God said to Cain well, you know Cain I'm accepting Abel's and not yours but but uh, but still you can you can redeem this day sin yep. is crouching at your door you must have dominion over it and Cain chose to go another way so I think that for me, it's uh, the way it relates to what we're talking about. Is I think that, that we've 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 compartmentalized our lives, and and frankly, that Christ and the Scripture and the Church has gotten rega re uh, relegated to uh, an isolated portion of our yeah, lives. Right. And I think, frankly, that portion in the public in general is getting smaller. Oh yeah. And so, but I but still. Even in the midst of that, I'm seeing young people who will respond to the genuine giving my whole life. Yep. A, a gentleman named George Barna, who has done nothing but study trends in the church for the last 30 years, wrote a book. Um, I forget the name of the book now, but it's basically looking at the generations uh, that are to come. And he said, I got some good news and bad news for the, the church. He said, the good news is that Younger people, meaning millennials and youngers, are looking for a faith that's deeper than their parents, than my generation. That's the good news. The bad news is they're not finding it in the church. Uh, and so 
the church uh, and so his prediction in the book is uh, is uh, that the churches as they're currently organized today are less than one third of evangelical Christians are going to be members of churches as they're currently organized mm-hmm. so but I think in that there's an opportunity for churches that are going to have the more this is about your whole life and I think that's really what we're talking about is 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 God God gave us an owner's manual in scripture for all his creation mm. and as as uh, Francis Schaeffer said all truth is God's truth so this book is supposed to work uh, for all of life including vocation including yeah. work and so as we begin to apply that to our whole lives it's going to attract young people i've seen it i've seen it attracting young people so i think it's good news uh, that that people are looking for that whole life view and so i think that what we're beginning to see is um is we got to we got to focus our whole life around this and so that gets back to the longevity piece you were asking about. You know, one of the one of the benefits of being older, uh, we're I'm 70 years old now. I can look back and see yeah. fruit over the long term. So the pay, yeah. the payback, yeah. the payoff that you were asking earlier, what what it is that that are some of our most mm. uh, meaningful yeah uh, experiences are 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 having the experience of of seeing that light come on in people's eyes that that. Yeah, God has something better for me than the way I've been living, and sometimes it takes twenty-five years. Yeah, we we we're yes, we're involved in the lives of uh, a young man now that I hmm. I was privileged to lead to the Lord in terms of praying a prayer of confession thirty years ago. Yeah, but for twenty-five years he was in and out of addiction, crack, cocaine, and there were times that I never did think this boy was going to straighten up, and but. He attended my reprioritization party as opposed to a retirement party a couple months ago. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and he stood up and, and, and with tears in his eyes, he said, the one thing I can say about Phil and Marsha Reed is they didn't give up on me. And now he's clean. He has his own construction company. He's doing work on our house. Man. I love it. And that that's the payback. And sometimes you don't you don't see that. You certainly don't see it very long, but... That is the same, yeah. you know, that is, that is the impact. The, the meaning is the impact. You know, See, I don't think meaning yeah. and impact are two different things. I think, I think we just got the wrong, we're looking for hmm. impact in the wrong place. I don't think impact is, is just numbers. Yeah. How many people were changing, although you have to, you know, if you're going to seek funding particularly, you got to yep. have numbers and all that. But, but man, the, there's nothing better than seeing somebody or another gentleman we're in contact with that was in addiction, and he told me one time he had been through 17 different treatment programs, and he, he relapsed. And But it was just that one last time where a group of people from our church just reached out and loved to him one more time yep. that he got clean. He's been clean now for 10 years. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, that's interesting. So this idea that we often don't see impact is a kind of myopia, right? That we're, uh, something like a lack of faith that you had the faith or hope or some the long the the sight the vision to see far enough down the road right because i think and man how many you know i would say especially with 
church folks that I've seen a lot of that there's been a lot of like, I've seen a lot of people turn their back on people, um, relationally because they weren't turning their life around. They weren't acting right. They weren't, you know, uh, they weren't becoming what the person that was, you know, trying to treat them as some sort of a project as opposed to like just a genuine relationship. So, you know, as you tell this story, it's like, yeah, it's 25, 25, 30 years or however long has passed. But you went through a long period of time where it was Mm -hmm. just addiction or just struggle or, or this, you know, you said like this kid's never going to make it out of this. Mm -hmm. And yet it sounds like you continued in relationship and continued walking with them. And yeah, and it sounds Sunday school and it is Sunday school, but you know, Jesus gave us the formula. He said, uh, he was asking Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Yep. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Yep. So what he was really saying, if you want to know what all scripture is about, love God, love your neighbor. So with this young guy, the only thing we did is we just refuse to stop loving him. Yep. And again, that sounds like Sunday school, and it is Sunday school, but it works. Yeah. The love of Christ uh, will change people's lives that, that we never thought could change. You know, And then, too, we get sometimes get amnesia. We forget how many times did God put up with us. That's right. How many times did God put up with Phil Reed when he went out and drank to excess and did stuff that could have wound him up in jail yep killing somebody and how many times did he did he give up on me and then we want to set a limit on people well i'll i'll help you once maybe twice three times if 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 i'm feeling really good about you but after three times you can forget it Mm -hmm. but after 14 times so what if what if we had said with this one guy that you know 14 treatment programs is enough, man. You know, you've had 14 chances and you've blown it. What if You're we hopeless. What if we hadn't tried that one yeah. 15th time? He wouldn't be clean now. Yep. And he wouldn't be married and, and a five-year-old little girl and that he's raising and loving and and uh, turned his life around, man. And, and that's, to me, that's the payback. That's why I'm still doing this work. That's why I still love getting up in the morning because I know there's more of that, that God wants to use us. And so at times there's just been no other reason I should get out of bed the next morning and try again, except I believe God knows what he's talking about. He's a pretty smart dude, and he created the owner's manual, so he knows what he's talking about. And sometimes it's just that simple, just try one more time to love this person, and it's life-changing. That's so good. I want to pivot a little bit because I think I think this may get at some of those experiences for you all. Um, of your own pivots, maybe. Um, I, I briefly, I was like clicking through some stuff online and found a talk that you were giving it Jubilee and, uh, and had, um, I I was, I was kind of mad because the video cut off. You put a picture of Kristen up and I, all I could see is she was holding a picture of a cat, but I couldn't see her face in the video because the camera had cropped it out. Um, but in that, in the early part of that talk, you said, um, when I came to Mississippi, uh, I was young, pagan and white and God healed me of two of those things. Yeah. I'm no longer young 
and I'm not a pagan, but I'm still white. Yep. And for those that maybe don't have the privilege of seeing you and haven't been able to interpret it through your voices and stories, you all are white. Mm-hmm. And part of your story is you came to a place that is, so you said, as you met John Perkins, one of the things he was talking to you about was, or one of the, the three R's, there's more R's than that now, right? No, just three R's. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, then there are, but was racial reconciliation. And then you both came to this place where the majority of the people that you're working with, is that correct, were mm-hmm. African-American? Mm-hmm. Um, can you, I know that there was, there's a long, I'm sure there's a long journey and narrative there. Um, but can you just talk to me about your own experience a little bit with the work of racial reconciliation? Sure. Well, I, I'll tell my story and my wife can tell hers. But yeah, so uh, I became pastor of Boyce Calvary Fellowship, which was really the first interracial church in Jackson, Mississippi. Back this is in, uh, 1975. We okay. started. And when I first came to Mississippi, you had to realize the Ku Klux Klan was still handing out their literature on the street corner in Rome. Yeah. So that that's just as recently as my being there. So so we started this interracial church. It actually started before I came. But when we got ready to choose a pastor, they asked me to be the pastor. And so it wouldn't have been my first choice because I'm a white. Our congregation is mostly African-American. We were living in an African-American community, but they asked me to be the pastor. So I agreed to do it. That was 1976, beginning hmm. of 77. Well, about six or seven years later, we started having what we called the racial reconciliation meetings that were called by uh, some of our African-American members to, to begin to bring up some issues that they were struggling with. And one of the issues that they was brought out that really hurt me deeply was uh, I had one person say uh, they were ashamed to bring their friends to church on Sunday because we have a white pastor. Mm. Well, you know, I called myself pastoring this person now for six or seven years and now to hear that was devastating but one of the things that was said is that that my preaching is too white and uh and i was thinking to myself what do you mean my preaching is white man i'm I'm preaching a pure word of god here it's not black or white but as i often try to do i do try to listen to people and test it so i went home and looked at my sermons and and listened you know went back through my outlines and tried to remember my what I'd said, and, and guess what I found out, John? My preaching was white. It was white. What all does that my, mean? Well, my style was white, number one, but... That's true. All my examples, <laughs> the examples I were using were all white, you know? Mm. They were from history and my white experience. Yep. Well, about the same time, I, I'd read Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos, mm. Our Community?, and he predicted the breakdown of the civil rights movement. He said, it's going to break down unless white people re-educate themselves. And so I said, well, okay, then I'm going to learn something about black history. Mm. Now, I started out learning black history so I'd have something relevant to say to my African-American members on Sunday. Sure. But as God does it, as God often does it, is that, that I found out that by really becoming a student of black history, I found some of my own heroes of the faith. Yeah. And so I tell people that I didn't, I, I, again, I took that 
devastating sessions we had, and instead of um, of just allowing it to make me angry and bitter, I tried to learn from it. So I took the fact that, yeah, my preaching is white. So I started reading black history. I started listening to black preachers like uh, uh, Tony Evans and, and uh, E.B. Hill and others that were really dynamic black preachers. And I didn't become a black preacher, but I became a better preacher. Yeah. And so for me, the whole issue of reconciliation, the payoff is we become better. You know, I don't stop becoming, I don't stop being white or Euro, Eurasian or whatever my you'd, ethnic pool you want to put me in. But I do become better because I'm in relationship with people who are different from me. Yep. And I fully expect we're in heaven we're going to have ethnicity. Oh, yeah. Revelation 7, 9, John's looking up into heaven. He says, I saw around the throne people from every nation, every language, every tribe, every people praising God together. Well, he's looking up in heaven. Apparently, there was still ethnicity in heaven. So we're not supposed to get away from race. We're supposed to embrace race. We're supposed to learn from it. We're supposed to become better. And so that's been my experience and why we're still there. I know I've become a better person because of... uh, of uh, being in those interracial relationships. I've become more whole. I've become more complete. And my wife and I will say this, and I really am done, but uh, let my wife talk. But uh, she said one time, <laughs> we used to do these relocation workshops uh, on why we did what we did, and she, she said something. She said, if you're going to stay over the long term, you've got to get away from what are you giving up to what are you gaining. Yeah. And that's really where why we're still there. We see that we've gained so much more than we've given up, and uh, hmm. in, including interracial relationships and understanding. Still white, unless God chooses to change me, I'll be white in the rest of my life. And but that's uh, probably true. But we're different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> The work of racial reconciliation in your own journey. It certainly is a process, Mm -hmm. you know. It's it's not something that I I think you ever fully achieve. That um, I feel like I I came to Jackson fairly self confident of you know who I was, yeah, and uh, that. I had value, and I think in many ways that has helped because I have been able to see that if I have value, then other people have value because Jesus was able to break that down in my life to know that my value comes not because of my parents or because of my skin color or because of... uh, my economic status or anything, but it comes because of him. Mm-hmm. And so I can, if I can understand that about myself, then that helps value other people. Yep. In the, from the same standpoint, not because of the color of their skin or their economics or their background, but because God values them. Yep. And so no matter what status or station they're at, they're looked on exactly the same as I am by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that helps be able to say we're on a peer level. 
you know, I'm a, it's, I'm going to have a peer to peer relationship with you. I'm going to learn from you. I want to learn from you and I'm willing to let you learn from me, Yep. you know, about who I am. And so I don't try to become black by copying characteristics or speaking in a certain way or, or dressing differently than what I am comfortable with. Yep. But I do try to be sensitive to the ethnicity of the African families that were in our church. Yep. And the heritage of the African Americans in our community and value what they bring into the relationship. And that it's not just me giving, it's me getting mm-hmm. from them. And so from the beginning of those early days working at Voice of Calvary for John Perkins and with so many of the young people that had grown up in Mendenhall, um, you know, those relationships are, are still strong <coughs> and still of great value because we were able to have some of those talks, you know, from the experiences that that they have when they go out into the world versus the experience that I have. Yeah. So from my coming face to face with the white privilege thing and of being uh, uh, able to walk into any store and have people glad to see me. Mm-hmm. You know, when we first moved into our community, our little, we had a little storefront, a little, uh, Westland Plaza is the name of it, and it's a strip mall of sorts, and it had a really nice clothing store in it. It had, you know, two banks. It had two grocery stores, a post office, and it catered to the middle-class white community that was built up around that area. Mm -hmm. Well, it was changing at that time in the 70s and early 80s, and I came to realize that when I walked into that retail clothing store I was treated one way versus when my friend would come in and be treated differently Mm -hmm. because she was black Mm -hmm. and those kind of injustices helped open up my eyes to things that I hadn't seen before that I didn't understand were even happening all around me you know my whole life and and that then means to me meant that I had to have these conversations with people. And I think I really worked hard to be able to have those conversations about, you know, well, what about this? Or how do you feel about that? Or what is, what, how does this affect you, you know, as a, as a black woman or as a black man? And then having the value of being in an interracial church where we were small enough to be close to each other and be able to have those conversations uh, and yet not um, but yet broad enough to have different viewpoints and different experiences on both sides uh, of the uh, ethnic aisle so yeah. to speak you know so that the the Africans that were there from Kenya and um, and Nairobi and Sierra Leone had one experience in America, whereas you know the African Americans yep. had another one, and then and then us Northerners had one, yep. versus the white Southerners had another, mm-hmm. and we were able to t- 
talk about those things and we didn't come into the community expecting to be the salvation of the neighborhood you know we came in to uh, live our lives and be of value to the neighborhood and have the neighborhood be of value to us yeah and i think that has that has saved me a lot of times from being um judgmental yeah or or uh, at least helped me to stop being judgmental you know yeah. to, to be able to to get to the point where i'm going that's not a fair statement you know that's that's not a fair thought to have and have someone that i can go talk to about that yep i'm curious as you're saying that about you said when your first few weeks when you got here and you went to whoever was leading you as you were at the youth camp and you said i want out these kids are terrible to each other and to me i'm curious in hindsight like do you have words for that young you in that moment or do you do you think there was is that related to the beginning of the journey more than yeah probably you know that he wouldn't let me escape yeah. You know, he he wouldn't he didn't say, "Oh, you poor little white girl, you know, you need to go back to Jackson. Okay, you can go." You know, mm -hmm. he didn't let me get away with that. And I think that was some tough love there. You know, the fact was he needed me to be there. You know, he needed someone to be in that cabin with those girls. Mm -hmm. And and he didn't have anybody else, but at the same time he was wise enough to know that if I was going to be here, I needed this experience myself. Yep. And so that toughness that allowed him to say or to maybe have had that experience with someone else before I got there yeah you know because he'd been doing this for a while you know running this camp and having volunteers come in to be with these kids and I may not have been the first one to come to him and say I can't handle these kids uh, you'll get used to it you know <laughs> and and say and we've been you know I you know we we were just friends from that day until the day he died you know and we're still we're friends with his wife we're friends with their children who are our age yeah. you know and if he had let me go home you know we might still have had some kind of a relationship but there was that bond yeah that was there because reverend bingham wouldn't let me leave and he said no you can you can do this you yeah know, you, you can handle it so being held accountable by a black man yep. in mississippi I put myself under his leadership. Mm -hmm. I didn't say, no, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. I've got to go. I was not not knowing that I was doing that, but I was still, that's what happened. I put myself under his authority. Yep. Because he was in charge. And it didn't even dawn on me that I didn't have to. Yeah. You know? And we're afraid to put ourselves under the authority of people that are different from us sometimes we're afraid to make ourselves accountable to people that don't look like us or don't have the same background as we do and and or we feel don't have our best interests at heart yeah you know and yet that may have helped set the stage for some of the more development that came on later on putting my st i didn't know john perkins i had no clue who he was when i came yeah really Oh, right, because you had met the young man that I was had, out there I for fundraising. white guy, you yep. know, who was raising support. And I came down because he said, oh, you need to be here. You know, I think this would be a good thing for yeah. you to do. 
I had no idea who he was. And um, so it was definitely a step in the uh, into the unknown, you know, for me. But thankfully, God gave me a heart to be willing to say, I'm, I'll do it, you know, I'll try. I love it. I'll try. Mm-hmm. We used to joke that our communal tombstone would read, they, we tried. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, and like when you started sharing this, you said it's something you never – you're never there. You never accomplished. There's, there's never an arriving, right? There's something Sisyphean about it. Like it's, it is the process. It's an ongoing, probably eternal mm-hmm. process of reconciliation, of moving toward oneness. Mm-hmm. You know, my own experience and, and this is, I mean, this is just straight up true for me is like when I, so when I became a Christian, which I don't know if y'all know this. So I became a Christian because I took too much LSD. Um, like in one night, I liked LSD and I took it here and there. But then one night at college, I met Jesus hmm. on LSD. And it was the real deal. Like I, I sobered up and was like, yeah, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And, hmm. um, and, and I've shared that story now pretty you know, uh, like just I've just shared it openly. And it turns out a lot of people have that story. Or something, something along those lines. But, hmm. but what happened was I wasn't plugged in with any church. I wasn't like, I, I was raised, um, Catholic. So I, that just meant I'm Irish. Right. So I was Irish and grandma was Catholic. Therefore I'm Catholic, but I had no real relationship with God or anything like that. And, and it was in college that I had this experience and I'm going to skip a bunch, but it, it, that experience really illuminated a lot of a, uh, pain I had been through in my senior year, I had gone through a windshield and a head-on car accident. That's why I have this scar on my head and my face was reconstructed. And and that was actually the first time I think I ever acknowledged that there was a God. Mm-hmm. But it was so I had somewhere to point my middle fingers and shake my fist, you know. That that was mm-hmm. the original point of thinking there was a God out there was for resentment and rage and whatever. And then I had this experience. And so I I just started reading the Bible on my own trying to make sense of it. And my buddy, my best friend at the time had had a similar experience actually on a different drug around the same time. And we were both neither one going to tell each other. We were like trying to be a Christian, but I like went to his house one day and he had a Bible open. I was like, you reading the Bible? And he, you know, he said, yeah, I've I've been looking at it. You know, nobody, I had a little one in my back pocket and I pulled it out. I was like, man, me too. I have so many questions. So we started studying the Bible together. And I remember saying like, are you serious? You're going to like follow Jesus. He's like, yeah, I'm serious. I'm serious. I was like, we like shook on it. We're like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to read it. And you know, so then we read it and it'd be like, Hey, if you, you know, John, this is a great example, I think, because it's so practical, but John the Baptist says, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have two mm-hmm. jackets, give to someone who has none. And I'm mm-hmm. like, cool, you got an extra jacket, grab it. Let's go find someone that needs it or whatever. And, and so we were doing this on our own, but I never plugged into a church. I was, I wasn't going anywhere. I didn't go to church. I didn't even have a framework for that. I just, we were just reading the Bible with each other and try to do what we can to follow Jesus. And then somewhere along the way, actually, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you this story. So what happened was we were in his room, his, so his, we lived with his parents and it's a two story house. So we're upstairs in his room and there's all these people downstairs and I'm like, what are they doing? He's like, I don't know what they're doing. They're down there. It's like once a week, they have this thing. All these people come over and he has no idea. I was like, bro, I'm hungry. So I basically like grew up in this guy's house. I was always over there. They're down the street from my parents. 
And uh, so I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go down and get some food out of the kitchen. So I walk down and I pass and a bunch of older, his parents, friends sitting in there and I'm like kind of eavesdropping from the kitchen, get some food. And I I was like, you know, they're studying the Bible, right? That's what they do down there. He has no clue, no clue. So we ask if we can join them. And that was the first Bible study we ever went into. And then, so now we're meeting other Christians and, and then they're like, Hey, go to church. And I went to church and I remember like right away. And I, and I always just assume something's wrong with me, but I, and that's probably true, but I went in there and I was like, I hate this. I don't like this. And I don't understand what this has to do with what I've been reading about. Like, I mean, we sing songs with his name, but I don't understand. I don't understand what we're doing here. And a lot of the reason for that was like, there was something, something like action oriented implied in what I've been reading and the life and teaching of Jesus. And I, and I just didn't understand this kind of, gathering and and it was a you know and then eventually and i i kept going because i'm like clearly it's like i'll i just need to get over this everyone's doing this. this is what you do if you're into jesus or whatever and so but eventually they did some huge building campaign and i didn't have any thoughts about justice or the poor or anything like that but i just thought that that this is dumb this is a bad use of resources and i'm and it's a good excuse to quit and i was like i'm done i'm not coming here anymore i'm done with church i'm done with these people i don't want anything to do with this and I ended up getting plugged in with a campus group, um, InterVarsity actually, which was a really good, uh, you mentioned Urbana. That was mm-hmm. an InterVarsity mm-hmm. conference, right? Mm-hmm. So you guys were plugged in with InterVarsity mm-hmm. back in the day. They've been a, yeah. yeah, they've been a, a, a solid student group and I plugged in with them and I was just waiting for the pass the hat, but they, we did a Bible study and I like, said, so what should we do? And I, I just stayed connected with them. Cause I was like, these are people trying to apply what they're reading and, and took seriously things like racial reconciliation and justice and things. But Somewhere along the way there in that story, I, I heard about a church that was feeding the homeless. And I thought that's, that sounds right. That sounds like something like I was hungry and you, right. And I was like, I'm going to go do that. So I went to this church and they had, there was a meal site where you could serve, but then there was a van that went out in, into downtown with like packed up food and some blankets and things. And so I went with them. And when we went out, I was like, I, um, you know, I, I went out with the van and I remember sitting with this man in an alley and he began sharing his story. And I just remember this, this man is beautiful and there's so much we have in common. And I, it was immediate. There was something I was like learning from him. It was like waking something. It was, I was encountering God in this, in this moment. And I can say, looking back over the years that I've been doing the work that we've been doing, mm-hmm is that I really do think that I've been the needy one. And in many, many mm. ways, I mm. I can't imagine not having access to the wealth of wisdom and insight and grace that I find among folks that are on the streets or suffering from addiction or marginalized in any in any capacity. And sometimes that's racial, sometimes that's economic, sometimes that's you know, because you just have a disability or whatever. And, and I know that for me, it there's, and I hear resonating in your own story is like, there's something, it is reciprocal. And actually there is something you're, you're finding and gaining that you're not coming to save or coming to bring. And I like the way you put that just to be neighbors and to try to be valuable and to learn and take, to take what you can from the lessons of others. And can you all share like the, so 
I became, it's, it's interesting because I met, so I met Kristen when she moved down here and, and I knew a voice of Calvary kind of from her, but then I knew John Perkins, right? You said he's become a household name and yeah. because of like community we had been involved with, like we're reading his books and trying to figure mm-hmm. out Christian community development and relocation and these kind of ideas that it, and, and it was an interesting, and it was early in that, like I didn't, I was vaguely familiar there and she was telling me about just realizing this deep connection that you all have had there and that the, the long kind of history and story and so much has grown out of that really movement that, mm-hmm. that you guys were part of. Um, maybe there's so much there. I don't know how to like direct this question, but like the, what is it? that has worked um, both in your own experience of the work you've done over all this time, but then even just in the legacy, like of Perkins himself, like, at, like there, it seems to, it seems to me um, beyond, I mean, and it could just be longevity and faithfulness, but there is something that has really worked, really caught on um, in the, in the work that you guys have given your life to, you've done, I mean, so workforce development, there was a credit union along the way, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's a church, there's so many initiatives and so many things. Um, Is there anything that you could say you could point to as like common threads or attributes of what has been fruitful in hindsight? Well, I think, yeah, you know, uh, I I always say anything we've accomplished, we being Boyce of Calvary or certainly Phil and Marsha Reed, has been done in partnership with others. So yep. uh, when I first became, I was president, I was founding pastor of Boyce Calvary Fellowship, and there was within the, the Boyce of Calvary milieu a nonprofit organization called Boyce of Calvary Ministries, of which I served as president for two different terms but when I first became president Voice of Calvary Ministries in 1999 uh, the organization had really fallen on some hard times we were struggling financially and God really gave me a word that the way uh, the way you're going to help Voice of Calvary Ministries is investing in others and that's a biblical principle of Jesus Jesus said if you want to be first, be last. Yep. If you want to be overall, be servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so God spoke a word through me, to me, that, Bill, the way you're going to help Boyce Coward Ministries get back on its feet is by investing in others. And so the principle is that we've tried to live, and of course my ego can get out of control like anyone else's, but in, in, in our best, our understanding is, and in our best days, we understand that the important thing is to get the, is to get the work done. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. Mm. Give God the credit. Mm-hmm. And, and I've come to understand there's plenty of other people who will take the credit mm-hmm. uh, if you don't, too. So that can be painful. But uh, like Hope Community Credit Union you talked about, when we became, we had this little group of three, four pastors, myself and three black pastors that, we had committed ourselves to each other. We said we both, we all were pastoring 
small inner city churches and we said whatever we do we're going to do together so so we uh, after we had been meeting together for a few years we dreamed about having a credit union because our people were struggling financially well we began to find out how hard it was to start a credit union that's no small thing yeah i can't imagine i want to go before the banking (laughs) commission get a charter and all that so we were about to give up but a friend of ours who actually worked for voice Cower ministries at the time said he knew about a credit union that already had a charter but they were getting ready to be liquidated Hmm. and so he set up a meeting and we didn't know about each other and so we our group was a fellowship of hope and this credit union was hope community credit union Hmm. And when I heard that, I got—I literally got goosebumps. I said, "This can't be an accident. God's putting this together." So, so what we did was we we uh, we said, well, "Well, let's go before the banking commission and find out uh, what would it do for you to not liquidate this credit union, let us keep it open." And so they said, uh, so we went and bank before the banking commission because they were getting ready to liquidate it, and they said. Well, you got to change the board, and, uh, and but if you can raise forty-five thousand dollars of, of uh, investments in the next forty-five days, we'll let you keep it open. We'll give you a shot at it. So we went back to our churches, and again, there were five or six of our churches, and between those churches, we came up with uh, the forty-five thousand dollars of investment. So they said, "Okay, we're going to give you six months now to come up with a business plan," and on and on, and. Uh, I remember we were meeting with the the banking commission, and and, uh, when they told us we had to reorganize the board, one of my good friends, who happens to be our pastor now, Bishop Bishop Crudup, said, oh, yeah, we know we're going to have to change the board, and and Bill's going to be the chairman of the board. And I'm looking at him like, wait, I didn't agree to that. (laughs) I I I knew nothing, (laughs) nothing. I'm a mathematician, and I have a degree in theology. I don't know anything about running a business. But I agreed to be chairman of the board, and so I became chairman of the board. But 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 we got somebody who knew how to run a business to be the 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 manager. And long story short, in all of that, uh, we got the credit union up and running again, and now it's in five different states. I mean, it, it's seriously, compi- it's competing with major banks now. Mm-hmm. But after the the only way that worked is I was chairman of the board for two years, and I got us. What I'm good at is developing relationships and getting people organized. But then after about two years, we had become a little bit solvent. And I said, guys, it's time for me to leave. I don't know anything about running a credit union. So I got out of the way, and I let the guy who started a credit union become chairman of the board. His name's Bill Bynum. This is the guy that was there, the one that was being liquidated. He's the one who started a credit union. Initially, okay. But he started as his church, and it was just a church credit union, and the members weren't supporting it. So, mm. But he knew how to do it, so I got out of the way. He, we elected him chairman. I became vice chairman for a year. and Basically, I just let him do I let him do his thing. And so he's the one that's responsible for it being in five different states and being a billion-dollar credit union now. I mean, it's a major financial institution now and if i had just said uh, you know one of the things i've learned in my 44 years uh, is it's you have to know what you can do but you also as importantly have to know what you can't do yeah and so i realized if this credit union is going to get beyond where we're at we got to let somebody do it who knows how to do it yeah i got out of the way and let bill bynum become chairman of the board and of course he's taking it now to a whole nother level but 
if I had gotten held on to that, sure, that's my thing. I'm going to do it. So you can read Hope Community Credit Union's history now, and you you probably won't even read my name in it, which is, you know, that could that could be a little painful, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's the principle of um, of you can accomplish a lot if you focus more on doing the job and doing the work and and not worrying about who get who's going to get the credit, mm. and so uh, that's one of the principles i'd say to anybody is man just do the work just do the work and don't you know our and i'm still in relationship with those four guys that we started hope fellowship of hope 35 years ago i'm still in relationship we still meet once a month and uh they're now uh really well-known leaders in the city and state and uh, we have this kind of relationship where we just get the job done and we don't I know with those three guys in particular, it's not about who's going to get the credit. And uh, and so that's one of the principles I know I've learned. And, and I'd say to anybody, you can be amazed what you can accomplish hmm. if you just do the work and focus on getting it done and not worry about whether your name's going to be at the forefront. And I still struggle with it. I'm not trying to pretend I'm all... Uh, you know, I've I've uh, overcome that. I still have an ego, and sure, but but I know that I have to lay that aside. Man, yeah, I think I th I just to agree with Bill. Um, I mean, he's well known too. Our our kids always joke. It doesn't matter. No matter where we go, someone's gonna say, "Hey, you're Phil Reed, aren't you?" Mm -hmm. You know, they're gonna know him. And call him out in some of the weirdest places, you know, yeah. that you would never expect to see anybody that you would know. They're going to know, somebody's going to know Phil Reed. But it's relationships, and those are an intangible thing. Yeah. You know, so you don't always see the new buildings. You don't see the revitalized neighborhoods. You don't always see the um, economic development that you want to see. In, in place of the blight that's that has become a part of it. You know, we've been working in our neighborhood for years, and sometimes we think, I think, it looks worse now than it did when we started, you know? And then I think, well, what would it look like if we weren't here? You know, yeah. it's a wonderful life type thing, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, but we know that we have relationships in the neighborhood, but we also have relationships that do bring resources into the community and, mm -hmm. and when we speak uh, and bring up some things some people it irritates the heck out of some people and others it's just like yeah we we definitely need your voice we want you to be a part of this and so it it helps to have been able to hang in there all these years and and stick around mm -hmm. come what may I love that the I love the relational kind of richness of really all of your stories from the beginning of like still in relationship with folks over many, many, many years, decades even. Mm -hmm. And your own relationship is kind of central to the rest of those and to your own work and calling. I want to put you on the spot a little bit and have each of you tell me what you've been most impressed with or proud of in the work of your spouse? 
I can go there. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk first. Um, I think one the thing that I'm most proud of is his uh, uh, commitment to teaching the, the scripture, mm. you know, to, to teaching the Bible, um, to not get caught up in um, trying to put himself out front, you know, or to be uh, the person who gets the credit, you know, or, mm-hmm. or the glory, but he's, he, he works hard. He works hard to teach the Bible. He doesn't take it lightly. Yeah. And um, he studies. He brings a lot of cultural things into it and has now for, for years. When, when he does preach at our church, the young people love it hmm. because he looks up the top ten songs on Billboard, you know, and he comes <laughs> and he talks about some of those songs and what, there are and what maybe there might be some redeeming characteristics in a couple of the songs or some of the lines but then there's another part where it's just no you shouldn't be listening to that do yeah. not incorporate that into your life and <laughs> and the kids are like wow yeah. you know they they really like that they respect it and they honor it and the parents appreciate it too and and so i just really respect that kind of diligence that he puts into his teaching. He teaches the, the, the Bible in a systematic way that people know what the Bible says, mm-hmm. but he brings the context of today's society into it and makes it applicable. And I, that's probably one of the things I appreciate the most. Mm-hmm. That is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> For my wife, she's really a, a very very good organizer and she she has no idea I don't think of how good she really is like this program she talked she talked about she just retired from credit plus this is a program that's won at least three national awards in American Banking Association in fact they're going to do an article on her in the national magazine in August but she took this struggling program that had just gotten started called credit plus and over her ten and a half years being there, they they put thirty thousand people through the program, have done twenty five million dollars of loans, and she oversaw all that. But so she, and the president of the bank, I mean the big guy, that the the CEO of the whole bank uh, knows her by name and gives her credit for Credit Plus. But but in the midst of all that, at her retirement party, she. She's like, no, no, this was not a Marsha Reed thing. This we did this together, and mm-hmm. but she really is very, very capable, very good at what she does. She sticks to her. Uh, she stays in her lane. Mm-hmm. You know, she knows what she can do and wants to do, and knows what she can't do. And but she really, uh, she started one of the first home buyer training programs in the city of Jackson 30 years ago. I mean. She really wrote one of the first home buyer education training programs in the whole city. That's not my opinion. That uh, the, uh, a, a young lady who served as the planning development director for the whole city of Jackson said that. Yeah. That Marsha Reed really started the first home buyer education program. Mm-hmm. So she's a she's very capable and a pioneer 
in what she does and uh, and it's it's sort of a good thing that she doesn't know how good she is mm. because then you get to swelled head <laughs> and so she's not an arrogant person not a proud person uh, but I'm just proud of that she's gotten some recognition for the great work she's done particularly with that program thank you that's beautiful so I've been trying to ask everybody I talk to this question um what is success? What is success? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I think it goes back to, uh, well, I think there's a worldly, I think there's a worldly definition of it, and that is prosperity and, uh, and how many li- numbers. You know, we talked about impact earlier. Yeah. The way the world mentioned, the way the world uh, uh, measures that, I think they all talk about numbers. So yep. Have, gotta have the most numbers. And there's a, there's some truth to that. I mean, sometimes uh, as Christians, it, the other flip side of that is we can accomplish very little, and and because we're not doing it right, and we can we can uh, we can console ourselves by well, it's not about numbers. Sure. Uh, but you just suck at this. Yeah, you just, <laughs> instead of admitting, yeah, we're just not very good at yeah. it. Yeah. But for me, again, success is is uh, is uh, are you maintaining are you maintaining your calling over the long term, and the number of lives you you see and change that to me is success. Mm. Uh, is uh, again for me the payback is seeing that light coming on in people's eyes where uh, you know we our home ownership program we had a young lady a lady who was third generation living in subsidized housing rental housing never thought single mom never thought she'd own her own home Uh, fixed income she had a child at home and she never wanted to work never thought she'd own her own home she said i grew up in this housing development is probably where I'll die but she came to our uh, our circles program a program to help you get out of poverty and she took her six years but she got her credit in in uh, straightened out she and she long story short she ended up buying one of our houses mm. and now she's on our board and so to see the light come on in her yeah. eyes like yeah I can do this and see how because for every life we change, we're we're changing ten other lives. Because her, she's got friends now saying, "Yeah, well, Sadie, if you can do this, I That's grew right. up with you. If you can do this, I know I can do it too." Yeah. And so it's like that pebble in the pond there. Dorothy Day talks about mm. throw a pebble in the pond and be and see that ever widening ripples out. Ripples out. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, that's that success is uh, is. Knowing and knowing, for me, the goal is to help break that cycle of poverty. Yeah, seeing that happen and then seeing the ripples from that—that's that's what I'm looking for mm. as my success and what I want out of life, and that's still what I want to see. I'm still looking for the next uh, Charles or the next Milton or the next Sadie Palmer or the next uh, uh, John that that the fit five-year-old computer programmer. Yep. see that light come on in their lives that's and there's more of that out there there's more of that out there uh, 
it's not about seeing it with our eyes all the time because we've been living, Marcia mentioned, we've been living in West Jackson now 44 years, I, and I have this motto. And West Jackson is a place that decades ago people started leaving. It's our inner city. And, but I had this motto God laid on my heart years ago, West is best. Mm-hmm. And I ain't seen it yet, and uh, it's continuing to deteriorate. But, yeah. I, but I'm beginning to see that it's going to turn around. I may not see it, but man, it's like it's like in the book of uh, of uh, of uh, wow, just uh, Ezekiel. No, no. Anyway, it's about uh, God saying uh, to this prophet, "Go and buy this house and, and pay the full price for it." When it was it was already being occupied by uh, a foreign army, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, "I think it's Nehemiah," and he said. Uh, do that because once again houses are going to be bought and fields are going to be sold in this land and so he went and paid the full price for it even though it was a bad investment because of god said i'm going to rebuild this community and so that's the that's the long term i'm trying to have for west jackson Mm. it's going to happen (laughs) hand that off to me thank you that is success uh success well you know, I certainly agree with what, what Phil has just said and what he's shared. Um, I think success is being able to say that you're being true to mm. what it is you're called to do. And, yeah. and so it doesn't matter quite so much that you can't see it. That's important because that's encouragement. Sure. And you can get discouraged easily otherwise. But... Uh, if back in San Jose, California, when I had had that moment when God was saying, telling me, you know, you need to let go and let me be Lord. If I had said no, I would have missed all of this. Yeah. You know, I, I might have, I might not have made it down here and, and I would have missed all of this and I'm thankful. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful yep. that I didn't miss all of this that we've been through and all the things that have happened and all the people that we've met and all the places that we have been able to go and the lives that we have touched ours. Yep. You know, and, and so success is, is being able to say, I've tried really hard to Mm. do what God has asked me to do. And I am going to continue to try to do that for my whole life. And whatever that means, wherever that takes me, I want to be willing to do that. And, uh, you know, we say, well, you know, we're retired now. We've got family that wants us to go do certain things mm-hmm. and go places and be closer to them. Or I don't know what that is going to mean exactly um, in terms of even living in West Jackson until we die. Yeah. Uh, we laughingly say that. People have said for years that they, you know, that we wouldn't stay. Everybody else leaves. We're not going to stay. Well, after 44 years, we're still there. They can't really say that. But we say, well, if we if we die in West Jackson, they're going to say, well, I knew they were going to leave. <laughs> At some point, it's you true. Know, I knew they were going to leave. And so some of that is, is uh, bondage, you know. Yeah. I mean, really, it makes it hard to make a choice. Yeah. And what we decided early on was that we wouldn't 
leave because of um, fear or anger or hurt uh, or disappointment. We would only leave because we felt God calling us somewhere else. So there was another place that he wanted us to go do yeah. the same basic thing that we had been doing and have been doing all along. And that may happen. You know, we may we may now feel that call or get that call to go do something a little different in, in a little different place. Yeah. We don't know for sure what that's going to be, but success is being true to that, what he's called us to do. Thank you all so much for taking some time to talk with me, but thank you more for the life you've led, the leadership and the model. So you, Phil, you had said there was, um, you know, referencing, I think the woman that bought her house that's now on your board, he said, well, it's like the ripples in a pond or it, it has an effect because of the people that see it and say, well, if you could do that, I could do it. And, you know, it's really like demonstrably true. I, I, there, the, um, that, w that so I, the great example, and I, I repeated a lot, but the, the, it was the four minute mile right when it was thought to be impossible for people until someone did it and then people just started doing it right and left mm -hmm. until it became the standard right mm -hmm. and, and 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 very similarly like what you know i hadn't seen anyone succeed or i hadn't seen anyone get out of this circumstance or this generational poverty or this loop and yet as people have some victory and some success and the people around them see that it's a it's a source of hope it's a model of how it's done and and it is it does replicate and so you're like, for every one, it's 10, it's 20. It's because then what, what are those 10? And, and in that way, there's, it's incalculable. The impact that you, the two of you and your relationship have had in this world and in your city, um, it's incalculable, right? And thank you so much for your lot, your life and your dedication, your faithfulness to that thing that you were created for the work that you've put in over all these years for staying true. And I'm excited about this conversation and for people to hear a bit of your story. There's a million things I wish we would have had time to get into. I mean, there's so there's probably more left out than we got to. But my hope is that even the model that you are in just sharing your stories now uh, will echo again that, you know, even as I talk to you, it's like I, I want to be like you. I, I look forward to looking back over my life and saying, yeah, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Um, been faithful and can see the fruit over that long haul. And I'm, I'm grateful for models and examples like you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for this time. And, uh, and I just pray that this would be another stone in the pond mm -hmm. that would ripple out as folks hear your story and hopefully embrace that ethos. Go ahead. Thank you, John, for having us. Cause I really, really admire what you're doing with well-built bikes. I, you know, you're doing something that I don't know very many or even if anybody else is doing it and, and you know that's part of what uh, any success we've had is primarily because we've been willing to give it a try you know uh, I always believe that somebody asked me to do something I'll give it a try I mean back when I was a contractor I remember uh, this lady asking me can you hang wallpaper and I said Yes, I can hang wallpaper. Now, she didn't ask me had I ever hung wallpaper. <laughs> she just asked me if I could. And I said, sure, I can hang wallpaper. Mm 
Yeah. So she gave us a job hanging wallpaper. So I went home and read up on how to hang wallpaper and got yeah. it done. But you know, it had had I just not been willing to try or hope community credit union. You know, okay, you want me to be chairman of the board? I'll try. I don't know nothing about finance. I'll run a bank. How hard could it be to <laughs> run a credit union? <laughs> we built a new subdivision of new houses after Hurricane Katrina. I, we'd, Voice Calvary had never built a single new house before. We'd always done rehabs. But how hard could it be to build a 16-house mm-hmm. subdivision with, on a vacant piece of land? But how hard could it be? <laughs> how hard could it be? So, we, But, you know, we got it done. Yeah. But we got it done because of goes back to partnerships. We got it done because there was a guy who out of California that had built multi-billion dollar developments that was involved with us. And for him, that was a, that was that was a hobby yeah he got it and he got it done for us so just giving it a try and being willing to work with people who know what they're doing so you know that's what you're doing man it's this whole, whole bike thing man and, and i just you're gonna change a lot of lives through it man. thank you yeah we we you know the bike well-built bikes and there are others doing work we actually modeled a lot after others there's a um there's a a bike shop called redemptive cycles in Birmingham, Alabama that we traveled up regularly to go meet with and see. And there's people that have gone before us. And, but at the same time for me, it was like, it's just another tool, right? Like it just seemed to be a better tool than some of the other ones we had used and felt like we were getting at some of the deeper issues underlying a lot of the needs that we were seeing around us. And it was in direct response to things that the community was telling us like, Hey, you know what the main obstacle for me is I can't get across town and it's a major problem here. And so we're like, okay, let's, let's see it. Let's put our heads together and work on that. And turns out there's mountains of bikes going wasted and we try to figure that out. But it's funny as you're sharing that, I think, and I don't know if this is something temperamental or what, but something that really resonates with me. And I think it always has been, I've always said, you know, people say if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. I hate that. I honestly hate that. And I always say if it's worth doing, it's worth doing bad poorly over and over and over and over until you figure it out. And, and maybe it is worth doing right eventually, but it's, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of times that things don't get done because I don't know how, because I don't. And, and, and what I hear and what you're saying is like, yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out and I'll do it wrong and I'll mess it up. And I'll mess it up again. Like we, I didn't know how to run a business. I probably still don't know how to run a business, but it's, you know, God is faithful and it's moving along and we're figuring it out as we go. And, uh, and that's why we joke that, you know, our tombstone and read, they tried. Cause ultimately, you know, I, I always think of, I went to a friend's house and he had a drawing that his toddler did hanging on his fridge. And you guys have seen these, you've got grandchildren, you know, it. it's hideous. It's a bunch of crayon looks like, crayon vomit on this piece of paper and it's hanging on his fridge proudly displayed and i remember thinking man that's ugly like it's really ugly but to him it's not it's beautiful it's the work of his child Mm -hmm. and i for some reason that always stuck with me and i thought you know in the end when we stand before god and we do all these things with our life i think that the work of our lives might look a lot like that drawing Mm -hmm. that god will hang on the fridge of the kingdom and say yeah, but that's my child's work. Yeah. Like because I love them and I'm proud of them and you know, them. maybe in the end it is all scribbles. Mm-hmm. I love it. But you're also learning something else you said. Um you're also smart enough to know work with people who know how to do it. That's and it. So you're modeling you're modeling it after a successful program. And that's yeah. one of the things I've had to learn over the years. I don't have to 
reinvent the wheel, make all the mistakes myself. Yeah. Work with people who know how to get it done. Yeah. And uh, that's what you're doing, and I, I, I appreciate a lot what you're doing. Well, thank you all. Well, thank you. We appreciate thank the time. Thank you. I love it. All right. Yeah.